How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Hello, this is Valerie Amato, Associate Editor of EMS World. The following is a read-aloud of my article, A Blast in the Backyard, The Role of EMS in Hazmat Disasters. On Friday, June 21, 2019, a massive explosion at an oil refinery shook South Philadelphia and portions of southern New Jersey at approximately 0400. Residents woken by the blast reported rattled windows, objects knocked from shelves, and reverberations felt through houses. A leak from a process unit containing various hydrocarbons and hydrofluoric acid, HF, at the Philadelphia Energy Solutions, PES, oil refinery sparked the three-alarm fire, which caused several explosions that produced large mushroom clouds. It was not an ordinary three-alarm fire by any stretch of the imagination, says Adam Teal, the Philadelphia Fire Department, PFD, Commissioner and Director of the Philadelphia Office of Emergency Management. The fire was extinguished after two days, but was not considered under control for nearly three months as local, state, and federal agencies worked together to neutralize nearly 340,000 pounds of HF, a chemical used to make high-octane gasoline, refrigerants, pharmaceuticals, and other household materials. This was a very high-risk, low-frequency type of incident, says Teal. Ready for the threat of chemical incidents. Of course, low frequency doesn't mean planning and preparation is unwarranted. Built in 1870, the 1,400-acre PES facility is the East Coast's largest oil refinery and has a long history of fires dating back to 1931, the most notable being a 1975 blast that killed eight firefighters. The threat of hazmat events keeps PFD crews training regularly and ready at all times for large-scale incidents like the 2019 fire. Serving a densely populated city of more than 1.5 million that is home to the busiest ambulance service in the country, a large seaport, and a major international airport, PFD must be prepared for a wide range of incidents. While the Hazardous Materials Task Force is trained at the technician level, and EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters are trained at the operational level, Teal says it's critical his department focuses on keeping EMS crews on their toes in training for hazmat injury treatment given the number of chemicals involved in the PES facility's oil refining process. There are some important EMS considerations besides what you typically think of with refineries, which are fires and explosion hazards, says Teal. We had this highly toxic material, so there are concerns around having antidotes and topical treatments for people exposed to the product directly. Going forward, we're continuing to look at what kinds of health and medical impacts hazmat releases could have and making sure we're prepared for that aspect too. PFD responded with approximately 150 firefighters, EMS providers, and other emergency personnel, along with nearly 50 vehicles and apparatus, but operated under a unified command with the refinery's private fire brigade. Multiple agencies assisted with the response and ongoing management of the incident, such as FEMA, IMAC, the Interagency Modeling and Atmospheric Assessment Center, PEMA, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency, the EPA, the ATF, the DOD, 
the fire marshal's office, and others. This was a truly multidisciplinary event. We got a lot of great support from our partners, says Teal. As with any other incident, Teal says, having good relationships with other players in the field contributed to the successful response to the fire. These included the refinery, its fire brigade, and familiarity with the site itself prior to the fire. Mutual aid plans already existed in anticipation of an incident like this one. He advises fire departments, EMS agencies, and emergency managers to ensure they have subject matter experts on hand in the event their communities experience a hazmat incident, particularly if industrial sites like a refinery are nearby. Stop the burn. If you're in an industrial community where HF is known to be used, know the risks and understand the treatment, says Randy Kearns, DHA, assistant professor in the College of Business Administration at the University of New Orleans and retired clinical assistant professor at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Calcium gluconate should be available to the EMS crew. Where HF is used in higher concentrations, it's essential. With patients, focus on stopping the burn before relieving the pain. Small amounts of HF can be lethal if treatment is delayed, Kern says. Death can occur from 1% total body surface area exposure to HF with a concentration of 50% or greater. When treating a patient exposed to HF in an industrial setting, the EMS provider should don PPE before initiating treatment. Follow standard decontamination procedures. Remove the patient from the area of exposure, strip soiled clothing, and irrigate wounds with water. Exposure to this highly corrosive agent can cause systemic toxicity secondary to deep tissue damage, resulting in hypomagnesemia, hypocalcemia, and potentially fatal dysrhythmias. In these cases, Kearns notes an ECG reading may mimic a calcium channel blocker overdose. Look for bradycardia and prolongation of the QT interval, which indicate a need for an IV solution of either calcium chloride or calcium gluconate. An HF burn might not be immediately apparent, so pain is often out of proportion to the appearance of the skin, though skin may eventually present with erythema, edema, and necrosis. The extent of injury depends on duration of exposure, concentration of the HF, and route of exposure, whether oral, dermal, or ocular. If a patient has inhaled or ingested HF, provide 100% humidified oxygen with 2.5% nebulized calcium gluconate. Topical treatment involves applying a generous amount of calcium gluconate gel on the exposed area. You can also mix 75 milliliters of KY or another water-soluble jelly with 25 milliliters of 10% calcium gluconate. This will help prevent further damage to the tissue and helps with pain relief. With the assistance of local hospitals, Teal says PFD had previously been equipped with supplies and medications to treat chemical injuries, and crews are provided the most current training available to properly administer these treatments. PFD EMS was on standby 24-7 during and following the event, particularly for the hazmat team performing air monitoring tests and contractors hired by the refinery to remove HF from the grounds, says Teal. Make sure you get hazardous materials expertise on what's happening in a site like this, he says. We made sure the large-scale contingency plans were synced up with questions of what happens if one of the workers is exposed to HF, how do we decontaminate them, how and where do we treat them, and where do we transport them. Working in a setting as complex as an oil refinery with so many unknowns, Teal says crews followed the mantra, trust but verify, throughout the incident. This is what we do. 
We managed chaos, and this certainly was a chaotic situation, he says. I'm very proud of all of our first arriving firefighters, chiefs, medics, and all the support agencies. They really did a great job. Communications and crises. Coordinated communication between public safety agencies is vital during a critical incident, but equally important is communication with the public. The Philadelphia OEM alerted the surrounding community early on the morning of the explosion with a shelter-in-place order, and Teal held regular media briefings to keep the public apprised of the latest on the neutralization process of 340,000 pounds of HF at the refinery. A crucial aspect of crisis communication is being timely, says Carl Cowan, Assistant Director of Emergency Management at Harvard Medical School. Large refineries possess a substantial hazard burden. Any significant incident involving critical infrastructure will generate public interest, and there may be hazards to the community that need to be conveyed. Granted, there is a discovery period in the beginning of major incidents, Cowan says, where the scale is being evaluated and additional resources are being mobilized. This is especially true of events involving chemical hazards, so it's essential to have emergency managers or public information officers available who are empowered to send emergency alerting or provide community guidance. Sharing logistics and facts is only half of what communications with the public should entail. Consider the human part of it, too. Expressing empathy demonstrates caring, says Cowan. Communicating through legalese or jargon will not accomplish this. Using clear, relatable language helps the public receive and trust your messaging. Timeline of events. June 21st, 2019. 4 a.m. A Philadelphia Energy Solutions dispatcher sounds an alarm, broadcasting a warning to workers about a leak in Unit 433. The first explosion occurs in the middle of his transmission. 4.05 a.m. The first alarm is struck by Philadelphia Fire Department. 4.20 a.m. PFD strikes a second alarm. 4.22 a.m. A second explosion occurs, large enough to be captured by weather satellites. 4.24 a.m. PFD strikes a third alarm. Early in the incident, an unidentified PES operator in the central control room initiates a rapid de-inventory to move the hydrogen fluoride to a different container, likely preventing the release of a deadly cloud of the chemical that could have spread seven miles in ten minutes. One PES worker calls her a hero who might have saved the city. 5 a.m. Mayor Jim Kenney is alerted to the fire. 5.41 a.m. The Philadelphia OEM advises residents to shelter in place. 7.07 a.m. The shelter-in-place order is lifted. 8.30 a.m. Mayor Kenney meets with city officials at the Emergency Operations Center before announcing a task force would investigate the incident. 9.37 a.m. Philadelphia Health Department reports air management services determined air samples taken at the scene did not contain hydrogen sulfides, carbon monoxide, or hydrocarbons in the surrounding vicinity. 9.57 a.m. PES informs the media that three explosions occurred at an alkylation unit. 2.43 p.m. PES issues an announcement stating a small fire remained at the unit. June 23, 2019. 5.31 p.m. PES confirms the fire has been suppressed and HF readings are at normal levels. Hello and welcome to another EMS World podcast. My name is Jacob Sorensen, editorial assistant interning with EMS World. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we'll be discussing a topic that is low frequency but incredibly high risk, and that is the role of EMS in hazmat disasters. 
This is a companion podcast to an article that appeared in our July 2020 issue titled, A Blast in the Backyard, The Role of EMS in Hazmat Disasters. I encourage you to check on that article for context on what we'll be discussing today. The article took a look at the response to a refinery fire in South Philadelphia in June of 2019, which had released nearly 3,500 pounds of hydrofluoric acid into the air and led to the neutralization of 340,000 pounds of hydrofluoric acid still on the site. We're happy to have joining us today Randy Kearns, Assistant Professor of Healthcare Management at the University of New Orleans. Randy, thank you for coming on. Sure. Glad to be here. This article we're discussing today outlines the multi-agency response to a fire in the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery, refining complex in South Philly. Randy was a contributor on the article who helped bring to light part of the care that is provided to patients exposed to hydrofluoric acid and the possible injuries that come with exposure. Randy, I was hoping you could start us off today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I about 40 years ago, I became an EMT and uh, worked as a paramedic a couple of years thereafter. And then for about 20 years, uh, uh, either led an emergency services organization or uh, taught paramedic programs. Um, uh, finished my doctorate at the Medical University of South Carolina and then worked in the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, retired from there a couple of years ago and I currently teach uh, healthcare management now at the University of New Orleans and uh, uh, work with the folks here in um, the healthcare system and, and public health preparedness. So Randy, part of the article discusses how um, hazmat calls for EMS providers is incredibly low frequency, which means that a lot of providers come to a hazmat call with very little uh, preparedness. Um, so the questions we'll be going through today might help a provider in the future with running a hazmat incident. First question, what determines, in your opinion, that a patient has been adequately decontaminated? So be between quick and, and careful removal of clothing, which also includes contact lenses, um, uh, gross decon, uh, generally spending 30 minutes, I'm sorry, 30 seconds to three minutes in some type of a, uh, um, a shower type system, um, that'll take care of most of the contaminants. Um, and again, most any fire department can set up a, a quick gross decon for you. Um, but the general guidelines for any unknown substance um, includes copious amounts of water. Uh, I wouldn't hold off on using water trying to determine what the chemical is, uh, but if you know what it is, then target the chemical with what works best. And again, it's typically large amounts of water. Uh, and then sort victims for observation or treatment. Uh, it is important to distinguish that um, Technical decon includes things like, you know, the visible material being washed away. Um, does the patient still experience pain? Uh, and can you palpate the area of, uh, of the healthy skin uh, that's adjacent to the injury? And does that elicit pain? Or more specifically, is it hot to touch? Uh, that'll help you evaluate um, uh, additional um, uh, irrigation of the wound that may be needed. Okay, so... Part of um, the issue with the treatment in a, for a hazmat patient or a patient that is exposed to a hazardous material is there's a slight delay when it comes to uh, retrieving the patient from the hazardous area 
and bringing them to the cold zone, which is after decontamination. Um, is there a way to start to treat patients who are still going through the decontamination process, say if they need immediate, immediate intervention, such as an airway or in cardiac arrest? Um, so it, it, don't forget to protect yourself. Uh, you may need to start life-saving efforts before the patient's been uh, fully decontaminated. Uh, but it's also important to remember that a, a dead patient that's been properly decontaminated is still dead. So, you know, the experience is um, um, it, as, as difficult as it may be, it's important to recognize uh, what the people in Syria have gone through um, in terms of giving us some insight into uh, what type of resuscitation you can do while trying to decontaminate the patient and it, at the same point protect the rescuer. Um, I, I would say the big point of this is um, it needs to be a part of your con ed because it is highly unlikely you'll see this scenario more than a time or two in your career. And so, you know, it certainly is important to know at least the basics of how to, uh, how to take care of a patient under these circumstances while at the same time protecting yourself. So... Part of the uh, discussion in the article was that the fire department of Philadelphia had done a lot of pre-planning for the refinery site, which helped in containing the fire itself and quickly um, addressing the issue of the hydrofluoric acid. Um, it didn't really dive into how EMS providers uh, were able to prepare for such an event. Um, and across the country, with all of the different kinds of uh, industrial sites that maybe have uh, hazardous materials, uh, what ways can providers better prepare for a hazmat incident near them? Um, sure. So I, I would start with what the law provides. Um, uh, in 1986, after the chemical plant disaster in Bhopal, India, um, uh, the uh, U.S. Congress passed the Superfund Amendment Reauthorization Act, uh, became known as SARA. Um, the um, the chemical plant disaster in India released methoisocyanate and led to the death of 10 to 15,000 people in the, in the several months thereafter. Um, and what was particularly concerning was there was a similar plant of similar design producing the same chemical by the same company in the United States. And, and that really drove a little bit more action of uh, passing a law that, that helped us understand a little bit more about what's in our communities. Um, the law today is known as SARA Title III, the uh, Community Right to Know Act. Um, and then the place I would start is um, typically um, someone has um, a, a report that's filed with them annually um, based on SARA Title III requirements. And it's either going to be emergency management or the fire marshal's office. Um, but they hold the key to uh, kind of what's, you know, what's at risk, what the hazards are in your community. Um, I'd pay particular attention to um, the extremely hazardous substance list. Um, there's about 300 chemicals on that list, and there's planning quantity minimums, and reporting quantity minimums. Um, I worked as a county emergency management director at the time this law uh, was passed, and, and one of the things we saw early on was most facilities look for safer substitutes or to reduce um, on-site storage. Um, and, and I never had a facility that had more than five, five items from the list. So 
what I mean by that is most communities, there's someone, there's someone required by law to have to know what's in those facilities uh, under the under Sarah Title Three, and then and then from your standpoint, I, I would I would want to know, and and that would help inform you know protocol development of what may be at risk. Hydrofluoric acid is one of those is one of those extremely hazardous uh, substance um, uh, chemicals that are on that list. Um, but it's also important to know that that the requirement reporting threshold is 100 pounds. So if you only have 50 pounds on hand, as an example, it's not required to be on the EHS list. It is required to be reported, but um, it, it is a different reporting uh, threshold. Now, there's a difference between fixed facilities and transportation. Uh, I live in New Orleans. Um, we have one of the busiest international seaports in the world, and the port serves as a central point of connection for all five uh, Class 1 U.S.-based uh, freight railroads. Um, while I'd certainly target known risk at fixed facilities, um, and again, hydrofluoric acid, as was used in the, in the article, is a great example of what you need to know that's out there. Um, if you are around substantial transportation resources, um, at some level, somebody needs to help you develop what you need to be prepared for most anything. So part of the uh, issue with hazmat responses is that many of these providers will be seeing it for the first time um, and being a part of that response for the first time and maybe the last time of their careers. Uh, are there just some things that a provider can't prepare for? And if so, what are the best, what's the best course of action then? Yeah. So you're exactly right. You can't prepare for everything. And so the key is to recognize what you know something about and, and what are your limitations. And when you have those limitations, uh, who do you call and how do you access those services? You know, there are a number of, of apps uh, such as Wiser. Um, it's put out by the National Library of Medicine. Uh, it's free and it, it can help guide you through um, uh, certain responses. There's, as I say, there's a number of software products that are available that can help you. Um, but I would get back to um, a situation I got into a number of years ago where um, I was being deposed by a lawyer uh, defending one of our paramedics. And the lawyer asked me what I would do uh, for an acute episode associated with Addison's disease. And I started with a primary survey and continued with, you know, typical secondary assessment vitals. And he said, I, I know that, but what would you do about Addison's disease? And I said, look, it's one of a myriad of chronic conditions that I did not receive or have I provided specific training for. And, and so, you know, I have been trained to evaluate, monitor, and where necessary, perform life-saving measures until we reach the hospital. But I've also been trained to know the limits of, of what I'm capable of doing. And I know how to contact other resources to help me do my job. And, and that's what I would tell you about this. There are plenty of hazmat situations that you may encounter in EMS that are, that are well beyond the scope of what you've been trained to do. Um, don't do something that puts your life at risk, but at the same time, what are the resources you have that can help you do the job you need to do and trust the training that you've been provided to to protect your own life, but save someone else's life as well. As a provider, you learn the hospitals in your area. 
knowing which ones prefer which kinds of patients as well as the specialty centers. A hazmat incident being something that you don't run too often, where should a provider be bringing a patient for a hazmat incident? So it depends on the resources that's in your community, but generally uh, these patients have specific burn injuries and need a burn surgeon at a burn center. Uh, now, not everyone has a burn center in their immediate area, and they may rely on a, a trauma center, or if you're in a, a rural community, you may rely on the community hospital. Um, chemical burn injuries are something you can pre-plan to include in your destination planning also. Uh, but one other point to note, um, uh, there are aeromedical services that won't transport chemical burns because of the concern of contaminating their aircraft. So again, a part of your pre-planning should include both the care of the patient as well as, as destination planning. Where would you take these people and how do you get them there? Uh, and do you have the resources you need to make an extended transport if that's, if that's what's indicated as a part of your plan? Um, anyway, it, it's, it's, um, it is a unique situation. There are less than 122, I'm sorry, there are approximately 130 burn centers in the United States. And there are some states that don't have a burn center at all. So it is important to know where your resources are. Typically, you've already done that because of, of other needs, but um, this takes on a, a, a somewhat of a unique situation when you're dealing with chemical burns. So that's going to do it for this podcast. Again, thank you, Randy, for joining us. We'll see you on our next podcast. Keep an eye out on our webpage, emsworld.com slash podcast for the next podcast. And I again encourage you to go read the article, Blast in the Backyard, the Role of EMS in Hazmat Disasters on emsworld.com. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks again, Randy. Thank you. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.